You are listening to the Israel Connection on Jair Community Radio, broadcasting on 88FM and streaming live on the internet at j-air.com.au. My name is David Schulberg, bringing you another episode of this weekly radio program that provides analysis and insight with important interviews and discussion about Israel. My first guest today is Dr. Izzat Abdulhadi, the designated Palestinian envoy to Australia, New Zealand and the Pacific. In my interview with him, we discuss an article that was published by him in the Canberra Times titled, Anthony Albanese has the chance to stand up for Palestine and change history and consider whether it would be appropriate at this time for Australia to recognise a Palestinian state. So Dr. Izzat Abdulhadi, I welcome you back to the Israel Connection. It's been four years since we first spoke, and I can remember that although we had strong disagreements about a number of things, that the conversation was very civil. And once again, Mm. you have shown a willingness to talk to me, and I appreciate your preparedness to come onto my show, and I'm sure that many would be criticising you for for doing so, and I think a few people have criticised me as well for giving you a platform, but uh, let's put all these people aside for the time being. Thank you very much for having me, David. Uh, it's a pleasure. And life without criticism is not, I, I think, lively. <laughs> well, I think uh, my, my my one of my main tenets is uh, engagement, is that uh, people need to talk. I think that's one of the main uh, problems with the uh, Israeli-Palestinian dispute, that the two sides are not uh, talking to one another, and you can't reach any resolution if you won't be willing to sit down at the table and talk about things together. At least in Australia, I think it's very important that the two communities, Jewish community, Palestinian community, should talk to each other. Both are Australians who have different perspectives and views when it comes to Israel-Palestine. But I think uh, we will ha- we will have very good, Im- excellent impact if the two communities talk to each other. And I'm, I'm sure that if they are wise enough and have leadership, they will arrive to certain position, which is, I mean, agreeable by both sides. But, I mean, the attempt by itself, the process by itself is empowering, I think. Both are Australians from different religions and ethnicities. Yes, yeah. well, I, before we uh, finally got to talk now, I did uh, look to invite uh, members of the uh, Jewish community in the leadership from AJAC and the Zionist Federation of Australia, but they weren't prepared to talk to you. Uh, why do you think they are not willing to talk to you? I'm not sure, actually. I was um, engaged uh, perfectly with many leaders of the Jewish community and pro-Israeli, you know, groups. And even I mean, I have a seminar with uh, Colin Rubinstein. I talk to Peter Wertham regularly. I'm not sure why. Um, maybe you should ask them this question. Well, they probably talk to you behind the scenes, but I think in a public forum like this, it's perhaps a little bit uh, different. Maybe, although it's an opportunity for both of us, I mean, to exchange ideas. Uh, so one of our strategy as delegations talk to Jewish community, actually, they are Australians, and this is very important for us to explore and find out and investigate our own views from the source. So it's very important not just to read some of their own materials, articles, whatever, but I mean to be face-to-face to discussing uh, a lot of things. So this is my strategy, and I hope that also they are willing to talk to me because we talked in, in Palestine, uh, you know, uh, Israelis, Palestinians all the time. Uh, it will be very strange that we don't talk here <laughs> in Australia. Yes, you're, uh, you're right about yeah. that, without, without yeah. doubt. 
Now, the main reason I'm inviting you back was to discuss an article that was published in the Canberra Times titled mm -hmm. Anthony Albanese has chance to stand up for Palestine and change history. Now, listeners mm -hmm. can read the full text of your article on the website of the General Delegation of Palestine to Australia, New Zealand and the Pacific. They won't get it that easily on the Canberra Times because it's hidden behind the paywall. But I'll make mm -hmm. sure that listeners can read the full text of your article because only that way will they really appreciate what you're saying and what we're talking about. So my question to you is, what would the Labor government achieve if it recognised a Palestinian state at this time? I think first, um, self-determination of Palestine and statehood is a right by international law. And I think also that uh, Palestine meets the state criteria, which founded, established in Montevideo a treaty, uh, which like uh, if the Palestinian state have four things, government, borders, people, and international relations. So I thought we have all these spaces. And the third issue that more than 139 countries recognized the state of Palestine. And also this is another source of uh, supporting recognition of state of, uh, of uh, Palestine. And as you know, Palestine has been upgraded to observer non-member state in 2012, and Australia at that time abstained of this, not voting against. Politically, it's very important also because we want all of us to save the, two, the vision of, of the two-state solution. I think it's the only realistic vision, and we don't have any other alternatives. And uh, with the uh, existing, growing uh, settler enterprise, expanding settlements in the West Bank, we will be left with, without land, 8% until the present, actually, if we consider that Israel also controlled 64% of the Palestinian land, which called Area C. If we want to save this vision and Australia interested in lasting and durable peace, it's very important to recognize the state of Palestine within 1967 borders and also recognize the Palestinian positions towards what we call it final status issues, which are complementary uh, to the two-state uh, solution. This is our own negotiation agenda. Like, you know, Jerusalem borders, security, uh, settlements, water, and refugees. With the absent of a genuine peace process for the last 20 years, unfortunately, with more 30 years of bilateral negotiations, the outcome was zero of these negotiations. Both parties argued that the other party is responsible for the failure of this peace process for 30 years. Of course, our own position is an argument strong on this. Like for Jerusalem, we have three solutions. For Israel, one solution has Jerusalem has East Jerusalem annexed in 1980 illegally, and the international community until the present doesn't recognize the eternal per permanent unified capital of Israel as Jerusalem. For security, we agreed on demilitarized country. We agreed to bring NATO uh, forces or uh, American forces to the borders of Jordan. We agreed on mutual uh, security arrangements uh, to respond to the Israeli security concerns. Settlements is illegal by international law and an obstacle in front of a genuine peace process. Water is easy. We can share resources. And refugees, uh, we changed. We compromised about this. Uh, we talked about accept, uh, acceptable and just solution to the refugee issue based on the uh, United Nations Resolution 194. So from our own side, we try really to uh, facilitate a conclusion 
of an agreement which is sustainable, durable, and uh, contributes to the lasting peace. So politically, if, if Australia recognizes the state of Palestine, we will be a state, we will negotiate from different uh, diplomatic footing, as I mentioned in my own article, because this will strengthen also the negotiation power of the Palestinian uh, negotiator. Instead of sitting around the, uh, the table, occupied occupier, we will be strengthened to reach a sort of sustainable solution. Also, from moral point of view, I mean, the human rights issue is very important. And I think uh, Australia has its own value system, fair go, uh, equality, uh, social justice, and respecting human rights. All these elements together establish an argument for Australia to recognize the state of Palestine. And I think this is for the best interest of the Israel and Palestine. It's not only for Palestine. Why? Alter because alternatives are uh, not acceptable to both nations. One state solution or ethnic cleansing, or I mean annexation uh, de jure or de facto annexation of uh, Palestine. I don't think that Israel is interested in apartheid system uh, because discriminating against the majority in one state solution. And also Israel wants to, to be democratic, and they, but they are not interested also to provide Palestinians with one vote, one person in one state solution. Uh, this means that it's it won't be a Jewish state. And the ethnic cleansing annexation uh, de facto is not acceptable by uh, the Palestinian people. So the only realistic vision is two-state solution. If you want to save this, international community, including Australia, should recognize the state of Palestine. Okay, we've heard uh, a number of the arguments that have been um, banded around now for uh, quite some time. Just going into the article, some of the points that you've made there specifically, uh, I want to draw your attention to a newly de declassified response to the Clinton proposal that came out under uh, Prime Minister Ehud Barak that showed mm -hmm. um, that he was willing to accept Palestinian sovereignty on uh, much of the Temple Mount as a basis for peace talks. Now, you wrote in your article for the last 30 years where the bilateral negotiations were being conducted or were frozen, Israel's leadership has rejected any reasonable solutions to the key final status issues of refugees, Jerusalem, security, borders and water. Russian mm. offers of backroom deals made when governments were on the verge of collapse due to Israel's internal politics, as was the case in 2001 and 2008, were always about Israeli politicians' CVs and not any lasting acknowledgement of Palestinian rights. Now, the uh, declassified response is, uh, comes from highly respected historian Benny Morris, who suggests otherwise, he wrote in, back in 2002 that the former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak actually accused Yasser Arafat of being a liar who talked peace while secretly plotting the destruction of Israel. The proposals included the establishment of a demilitarised Palestinian state on some 92% of the West Bank and 100% of the Gaza Strip with some territorial compensation uh, and many other um, general uh, concessions. But Arafat said no at the end of the day. And uh, as you probably know, it's been reported that Clinton banged on the table and said, you are leading your people and the region to a catastrophe. A formal Palestinian rejection of proposals reached the Americans the next day. The summit sputtered on for a few more days more, but to all intentions, purposes, it was over. So I'm suggesting to you is that, that it is Palestinian intransigence, which has in fact been the principal stumbling block to a resolution to this Israeli-Palestinian dispute. And it goes further if we go to 2008, 
The Palestinians were given land equivalent to all of the West Bank and Gaza, a capital in East Jerusalem, control of all Muslim holy sites and a limited return of refugees with financial compensation for the rest. But uh, still, uh, it, you continue looking at this uh, uh, legally baseless right of return, not just of the refugees from the 1948 war, but of all their millions of descendants. And this is unprecedented for any other refugee population and is completely incompatible with the formula of two states for two peoples, as it would mean the end of Israel as a Jewish state. So I've given a, a riposte to what you've said in your in your article. Um, I suppose um, you want a chance to uh, reply to uh, what I've just uh, been saying? Yeah, sure. Thank you for this. I mean, uh, let me clarify first that peace is vested interest of the Palestinian people. We are under occupation. We are suffering for more than 56 years. And also, I mean, through the uh, 1948, 75 years. So peace is 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 vested is very vested interest of Palestinian people. So we want really to reach peace. And actually, when our own public more than sixty percent support two state solution, uh, and you know coexisting peacefully with Israel and talking about demilitarized uh, country, these are all indications of our own interest uh, in the peace. Who's, who's rejecting now the two state solution? I mean. Did you hear, listen to any official supporting two-state solution until the present? Like in 2009, Mr. Netanyahu in Herzliya conference, he said that he supported the two-state solution, then reversed his own support to the two-state solution. This is a problem. For the refugees, we, our plan is very uh, clear. It has been uh, declared by President Abu Mazen, which is uh, what we, what you mentioned about uh, in, in Camp David, which is what we call symbolic return or partial return, uh, which is, I mean, uh, Yahud Barak accepted this concept, like 200, 300, whatever. We are different. For us, I mean, it's implementation of right to return. For the Israelis, it's a humanitarian issue. It's uh, uh, family reunification. So uh, our plan also that all Palestinians have the right to return to the Palestinian state. We talked about compensation and we talked also who wants to stay in their own hosting country. They can stay with dual nationality. So this is our own plan. Our plan for Jerusalem is not unified eternal capital of Palestine, east and west, as now Israeli said. We said East Jerusalem is our own uh, capital or two capitals for two states or one capital for two states or international cities. So we agreed on three solutions uh, to this problem. For the occupation, I mean, the territories, it's not Judea and Samaria, so it's just calling now Judea and Samaria. Israelis, is very recently, uh, like a week ago, Mr. Netanyahu said that the aspiration, aspiration for Palestinian people uh, crushed. We, they will not have their own independent, and this he was this was his view for the last 20 years or more. And he said that the same Israeli law will be applied now in Tel Aviv, in Ayalon Street Road in, in the West Bank. So how, how then we're talking about uh, West Bank for them, for the, the Netanyahu and the religious Zionism is that this is Judea and Samaria. It should be annexed to uh, Israel. This is, I mean, built in the ideology. It's not like sort of uh, political, only political position. And I can also talk about security, as I mentioned, you know, on position and all the thing. In Camp David, we should not just believe, even a lot of scholars now talking about that Clinton lied at that time, and we don't have any record of the uh, inside uh, bilateral talks. I think uh, 
when they talk about 95% of land returned back to Palestinian, this wasn't including Jerusalem, because he said that under Jerusalem, the holy, the Al-Aqsa will be the Israeli sovereignty, and uh, then we have certain arrangements. So it was very vague positions toward all the final status uh, issues. I don't think that Palestinians were responsible for that. We went there to achieve a peace, sustainable peace. We can't compromise the compromise. Already we accept the two-state solution, which is 22% only for Palestinian people, 6,000 kilometers square. Israel is 78% of the land. This is the, the deal. And I think Israel should support a Palestinian state in, on this 22 uh, percent without any hesitation and we will solve the refugee issue we know that six million to return back although it's their own right uh, because every Jew can return now to Israel because they have their keys with them but we know that this is uh, not realistic so we will, because of that we consider this a final status uh, issues for negotiations unfortunately Israel said that they don't have a clue of this they are not responsible of the of the refugee issue. This is an Arab uh, issue. This is not useful, not constructive to promote, to proceed with the peace process because Israel agreed that the refugee issue is one of the final status issues. Israel said on security that they want to keep their own forces in the uh, northern valley of Jordan for under 100 years and, until we'll be good boys and, you know, behave well and have good manners. So we will not accept any Israeli soldiers on our own independent Palestinian state. We have these differences. We thought the uh, Americans, Biden, when he visited Jerusalem, uh, I think two months ago, he asked the Israeli leadership to talk to Palestinian uh, leadership to start resume the peace talks again. Unfortunately, they said, even Yair Labid, we, we don't want to talk to this leadership at all. So we are also not responsible of the resumption of the peace talks between uh, the Israelis and Palestinians. For the last 10 years, we, we did not receive any phone call from any Israeli uh, officials. They are more interested to have peace with Dubai, with Arab states, but not with their own neighbors. And as an important journalist said, it's good to go to a pub or cafe in Dubai, but it's good to have like cafe in Ramallah <laughs> because we are neighbors. I wanted to say, uh, I don't necessarily agree that... Uh... Uh, most Palestinians are actually supportive of a two-state solution. I think this is a disingenuous claim. I hear many of your supporters complaining that a two-state solution is jeopardised by Israeli settlements, but when they take to the streets shouting Palestine will be free from the river to the sea, this is, uh, is this not hypocritical to be professing concern about a two-state solution when really the aim would uh, clearly appear to get Israel, get rid of Israel as a Jewish state and replace it with a one state, which would ultimately have an Arab majority? Okay, David, I think this is very old narrative for Palestinians. It's, uh, we don't want to get rid of Israel. We want, I mean, to uh, live uh, peacefully with Israel. Uh, even, you know, Hamas in Gaza, what, they changed their own now uh, charter talking about uh, uh, accepting a Palestinian state in 1967 borders. Uh, they are pragmatic leadership, and they thought that they can also accept uh, this. I don't think that now from real politique that uh, anyone can remove Israel or from a river, whatever. We should uh, look to the majority of the Palestinian people, not the minority. And I think the majority is supporting two-state solution. If you go to Ramallah, if you go, I mean, to even Gaza and talk to the people there, they don't mention one state solution or, you know, want to dis uh, eliminate Israel. Because actually, politically, we can't eliminate each other. 
You know, it's like for the last 100 years, the Palestinians there, the, the Israelis there. So I think the best way is, is to sit together, to, to find a way to live as good neighbors. And I hope that it, it could be achieved. I'm optimistic, you know, because I think the two publics, you know, will realize at the end, the two civil societies, that this is the only way, I mean, to solve the problem, is to support the self-determination of Palestinian people in state 1967 and or as Israel as neighbor. Yes. Yeah, just, just to leave this point, uh, I can uh, refer listeners and yourself to an Israeli-Palestinian poll which shows support for two-state solution is an all-time low, and this is a joint Palestinian-Israeli survey that was conducted at the beginning of this year uh, with um, Dr. Khalil Shikaki was one of the uh, yes. protagonists of that uh, report. So people can look at that and see that we are moving away from uh, support for that. But I want to come to another point where you make the argument that by recognising the state of Palestine, you're joining a growing global consensus of 139 countries which have already done so. Actually, I thought it was 138, but I haven't uh, done my latest count. The only one of those 139 countries that's a Western nation is Sweden. Now, Sweden recognised Palestine statehood after the Social Democratic Party there won a polarity in the 2014 general elections. And, of course, uh, Palestinians and their supporters welcomed Sweden's decision, viewing it as a significant step towards achieving international recognition for Palestine. But really, was it? If we go to the end of 2022, Sweden's foreign minister remarked at the end of 2022 that the decision to recognise Palestine in 2014 was premature and unfortunate. However, the decision has been taken and this government doesn't plan to revoke it. If we put Sweden aside, Australia would be putting its neck out differently from any other Western, Western nation. So why should Australia move on this? It seems like it would... Uh, be a rather uh, bold uh, and, and in many views totally uh, unwarranted action at this time, given that there's no other Western support for it. Yeah. Why Australia can't show leadership uh, in this context as international, uh, as a good international citizen? Because a good international citizen should abide by international law, implement international law, implement justice. So Australia could be a, a pioneer in this process uh, here. And Australia is living in an area of Asia-Pacific, Indo-Pacific, in which most all the countries recognize the state of Palestine, like ASEAN's country, you know, and also Vanuatu, East Timor, Papua New Guinea. So most of them also support and recognize the state of Palestine. Why is this discrimination between uh, the uh, it should be like-minded, then Australia should recognize a uh, state uh, of Palestine. Why Australia should follow this issue? It should look to their own national interest, and it looks also to the, the will of the public here in Australia. The majority, 54%, uh, are supporting the recognition of state of Palestine, according to a survey. Only 9% oppose that. Australia, the Labour Party should look to their own grassroots constituency, in which actually... All the state branches issued motions that Australia should recognize the state of Palestine. So there's a public support, there's a, a party support, and also there is the Muslim Arab uh, support, and also a segment of the Jewish community support also the recognition of, of state of Palestine. I don't know why Israel put those efforts and Jewish lobby and Jewish, uh, sorry, and uh, Jewish community put all these 
efforts not to recognize the state of, of Palestine. And if I want to go with your own argument, most of the European countries wants to recognize the state of Palestine. Unfortunately, based on their own bylaws, it should be by consensus. But the they can't reach this consensus uh, because of four countries like Hungary uh, and also Poland, you know, Romania, who's more allied with the United States. Otherwise, we will have all these countries recognize state of Palestine because they don't think that the establishment of a Palestinian state is pending to the approval of Israel through unilateral negotiations. And actually, we have different political representations, diplomatic representation in many European countries, not like Australia, Canada, and the United States. And of course, as uh, in United Nations, uh, upgraded as uh, a state under occupation, observer, non-member state, but we are a state in the United Nations. It's a pity that Israel is just put all these efforts and Jewish community, which I appreciate, but all these efforts also to prevent the recognition of the state of Palestine, which I think it's for the best interest of the of Israel, as Yahud Barak and others said, not only Yahud Barak, Yahud Barak uh, uh, said that we are uh, heading towards apartheid now. He said so in, 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 in a statement because he wants to save the national interest of Israel to keep it Jewish and democratic because we are heading towards a one-state solution, which is not for the best interest of the two sides. Australia has, as I mentioned at the beginning, if they really uh, be having an independent foreign policy toward Israel-Palestine, should recognize the state of Palestine because then they playing sort of entrepreneurial. Uh, and pioneering leadership role. Yes, so you're, you're clearly an advocate for the Palestinian cause, is that there's no doubt about that. But at this particular time, do you really think it will help your cause to get recognition for a Palestinian state when the Palestinian Authority is so unstable, where corruption is rampant and the leadership is moribund? It's like giving a reward to the Palestinian people when the, the state of uh, play at the moment is... Uh, is, is dreadful that terrorism abounds. This is, do you really think this is the time at which it would be appropriate to do so? I think also from uh, moral issues, if, if you as describe whatever, we need the support of international community, including Australia, to support us in our state building uh, process and support the infrastructure and, you know, provide aid to Palestinian people to uh, assist, uh, even in the colonial history, in a British or French or whatever, they helped the occupied to establish their own states. Uh, if this is the objective, it's very important for Australia to continue supporting state building uh, uh, processes. Maybe we are not in a good condition now as Palestinian Authority. We have fragmentation, uh, we have problem from Gaza and West Bank, but this is an internal issue. It, it should not prohibit or undermine the macro level of political objectives, which is, I mean, the uh, uh, the lasting peace in the Middle East and the Israel-Palestine conflicts. It's it's an important step, which uh, be huge investment in lasting peace in the Middle East. And I hope that the Jewish community will support uh, such uh, a process uh, because also uh, this is the demand of a major aspect in Australia, which is the Muslim-Arab-Palestinian community, and both are uh, Australians. Yeah, I think this internal uh, pressure game that's going on in, in Australia is, is troublesome because I, I fear as though there's going to be in, internal bargaining going on that uh, 
the left are going to uh, be persuaded uh, that they will get uh, their wish for uh, Palestinian state recognition if they accept uh, the AUKUS agreement. And that's the sort of uh, politicking that I don't think uh, one wants to see. I think I take exception to the fact that the uh, the Palestinians have received huge amounts of uh, of, of welfare uh, and benefits that are coming uh, from uh, many uh, Western countries. And where is it going? I can just cite one example of, of ghost hospitals that reveal the deep corruption in the Palestinian Authority health sector, where one can uh, see a hospital that was built near Hebron in uh, Abbas's name, which uh, was not even uh, staffed. And there's another one that was built, which uh, is uh, basically just a, a hole in the ground uh, which won't even uh, uh, be created. This is the Khaled Hassan Cancer Centre, which was intended to be one of the finest cancer units in the Middle East, which at the moment is nothing more than a hole in ground, and the British have given them $80 million, which has gone nowhere. Palestine has to emerge as a state being able to manage its affairs uh, within its own right. At the moment, if it was to become a state, it would be a welfare state and nothing more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, I should say that, of course, we have our own internal problems. Uh, we suffered from occupation for a long time. Uh, it's long-term occupation, for sure, it has negative impact. And because of that is our demand to ICG, International Court of Justice, to investigate this issue. What are the impact of long-term occupation for more than now 56 years uh, on the Palestinian structure, Palestinian self-determination, and the response of international community. So, of course, I mean, we have our internal problem. I think we should be very proud of ourselves of all these problems because we are resilient under these very difficult uh, circumstances. For the funds, there is a myth that we received a lot of money from uh, the Western country. Actually, it's only $300 million we receive from donors every year, and so most of this also going to UNRWA. We rely on our own income and our own revenues from our own sectors and from our tax system. Unfortunately, also Israel holds now more than $80 million from our own custom, uh, customs fees, from our own taxes hold them for uh, unbelievable reasons. This is our money, and according to international law, they should give it to us. Any objective analysis should be uh, evidence-based. And uh, you talk about Britain give us like 80 million, you said, or something like this, which is all the budget for Khalid al-Hassan hospitals, $5 million until now we received, you know, and there was some mismanagement, I should recognize this, but uh, it's not that money. Sometimes we uh, donated this land to these hospitals, but we did not receive uh, sufficient funds to continue those because now we are suffering a lot of shortage of of funds and resources. Even all the diplomats now have 50% of their own uh, salaries. The public servants have 50% of their own salaries. And uh, of course, we we really uh, suffer severe uh, financial uh, crisis. Yes, this has been a perennial one, uh, one might say. Look, I've, I've enjoyed once again the opportunity to, to talk to you, and this is uh, 
maybe we won't wait another four years until we uh, engage. No, no, we should not. <laughs> but I want. I'd like to, also to have next time with the direct with the. I mean, uh, really, listeners. I mean, to your own radio, so we can have a good discussion also with some of the Jewish. Yeah, yeah broaden, uh, yeah, broaden the, the the discussion spaces. No, no doubt about that. But of course, uh, we're only a, a month away from the Labor's uh, national conference, mm-hmm. and we know what's going to happen then. More pressure on. Uh, on the Australian government, uh, and from your perspective, you'd like to see them uh, go ahead with Palestinian state recognition. Yeah. I think, from the my, from my perspective, and for many others, we we think that perhaps uh, recognition of some kind of Palestinian entity in its own right uh, may uh, may emerge at some point, but we don't think that this is the time to do it because it won't uh, do anybody any favours uh, to make it happen now. So I, I thank you very much for. For talking to me today again and uh, thank you very much let's David. let's stay in touch uh, with one another you just heard the designated palestinian envoy to australia and new zealand and the pacific dr Izzat abdul hadi putting his case for recognition of a palestinian state by australia and towards the end you may uh, note that he uh, expressed concerns that uh, israel is withholding palestinian monies but we must consider that the Palestinian Authority has a pay-for-slay policy. Israel is quite justified in holding monies that will go to support those who conduct terrorism against the State of Israel. You read me, Hal? Do you read me, Hal? Hello, Hal, do you read me? Hello, Hal, do you read me? Do you read me, Hal? Affirmative, Dave. I read you. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What's the problem? I think you know what the problem is just as well as I do. What are you talking about, Hal? This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. I don't know what you're talking about, Hal. I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me. And I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. What you just heard was the soft-spoken HAL 9000 artificial intelligence that went rogue in Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. This is the introduction I've chosen to play for my next interview with veteran Jerusalem Post health and science reporter Judy Siegel Iskovitz. In my interview with her, we examine what is going on with artificial intelligence in advancing research and development in healthcare in Israel in particular. Now, I've invited you, Judy, to speak with me on the Israel Connection about developments in Israel in the application of artificial intelligence to advance research and development in medicine. So welcome to the program, Judy. Thank you very much. Now, I'm a little bit daunted by uh, in this interview with you because I'm speaking with a very seasoned journalist, uh, mm-hmm. as I can see from your background. And perhaps you want to give us an idea of, of some of the things that uh, you've done that are extremely uh, commendable. Okay. I uh, was born in New York. I wanted to be a journalist from the age of 12. I went to Orthodox day schools, and then I went for my BA in political science at Brooklyn College, and then an MA at Columbia in political science. 
but I studied biology, but I gave it up because I couldn't stand the idea of doing pathology, killing frogs. I said, politicians, no, doesn't matter, but animals I can't kill. A few days after I finished my master's at Columbia, I came in Aliyah to Jerusalem, and I've lived here ever since. Uh, six weeks after I arrived, I started working at the Jerusalem Post. I've, uh, I wrote about all kinds of things from the Jewish world to religious affairs, but then for the last 30 years, I've, uh, more than 30 years, I've written about health and science, a total of 34,000 articles since then. I even got a doctorate at Ben-Gurion University, an honorary doctorate at BGU. I covered the presidency of Israel, and I, uh, I, I knew Yitzhak Navon, who was the fifth president, very well. And I accompanied him as a journalist to Egypt, where he introduced me to President Anwar Sadat at his home village, where he was born. About a year or so later, he was murdered by extremists for making peace with Israel. So you've got an amazing uh, career. I'm uh, absolutely astounded by uh, what your output has, has been. So I think that we're going to get the benefit of uh, somebody who's uh, very, very experienced. And I think you have an interest in the topic that we're talking about today, which yeah. is um, artificial intelligence. We're going to concentrate on artificial intelligence in its applications in uh, in medicine and healthcare more particularly because the area is just so broad we'd be talking forever and a day. So just to begin with, Judy, do you want to explain what actually artificial intelligence is? Okay, artificial intelligence, AI, they call it. It's intelligence that's uh, produced by computers as opposed to human or animal intelligence. It's using technological tools that allow for input processing and drawing conclusions in a way that resembles human thinking. So many would say that the five most uh, important scientific and medical inventions and discoveries in the last century are knowing how genes and DNA work, the internet, antibiotics, medical imaging like MRI, CT, PET, and fMRI, and artificial intelligence. It's going to change our world for good and for bad. AI includes the ability to learn, to reason, to generalize, and, and to infer media, uh, meaning. Uh, applications include Google search, YouTube, Amazon, and Netflix, understanding human speech like Siri and Alexa, self-driving cars, uh, creative tools like ChatGBT, automated decision-making, and competing at the highest level in strategic game systems. Now, in 1956, it was founded as a, an academic uh, discipline. And in the years since, it had ups and downs. At first, people were disappointed and the funding stopped, but then there were new approaches and renewed funding. And in the first decades of the 21st century, there was machine learning that dominated the field. This technique has proven very successful, helping to solve many difficult problems in industry and academia. Computer scientists and philosophers have suggested that AI 
may become an existential risk to humanity. People who worked on AI even recently uh, spoke before Congress. And even though they developed it, they warned the Congress that it's dangerous and it has to be regulated. And the economists have said that there's a risk from uh, AI of unemployment, uh, that people will be thrown out of uh, their work. In health-related AI, it began with analyzing relationships between clinical data and patient outcomes, diagnostics, treatment protocols, drug development, personalized med uh, medicine, and patient monitoring and care. Uh, improvements in deep learning techniques uh, in rare diseases are also included in that. And they can also analyze huge amounts of data through electronic health records, which Israel is excellent. Everybody has a health record in Israel of our uh, almost 10 million citizens. There are four public health funds, and everyone has an electronic health record at his uh, health fund. And that can be used for preventing disease and diagnosis. So the various fields in which AI is used in medicine includes uh, diagnosing coronary artery disease. It can use, be used for diagnosing cancer and characterization of tumors, discovering cancer drugs, finding out which protocols for treatment are best suited for each person depending on its genetic molecular characteristics. It was reported that an AI algorithm developed at the University of Pittsburgh has the highest accuracy so far in identifying prostate cancer, better than the doctors themselves. It's also been used for eye disease. The Food and Drug Administration approved the first medical device five years ago to, to diagnose a specific type of eye disease, diabetic retinopathy, using an, an AI algorithm. And dermatology has benefited also because you can photograph it and use a photograph to identify uh, tumors and various things, melanoma. It's also been used for gastroenterology, the digestive system. Uh, for example, the pill cam, which is a pill that you swallow and it goes through your whole body, was it was invented in Israel. And that could be, uh, they can enhance endoscopic procedures with AI so that doctors can quickly identify diseases, find out how severe they are, and see the blind spots that haven't been picked up. There's also a potential for diagnosing better meningitis, sepsis, tuberculosis, and all kinds of things like hepatitis B and hepatitis C. It can also be used to identify knee pain that the orthopedists don't notice. There's a, a machine learning al algorithm that can explain diagnosis and find uh, poor populations who have knee pains. And even there's an algorithm that could find men who are infertile and find their sperm without undergoing biopsies, which reduces the pain. There's telemedicine in which doctors treat patients from far away and they use sensors. So a wearable device could make a constant monitoring possible and the doctors were able to uh, find changes 
that the doctors themselves couldn't identify. Since the average age in the Western world especially has risen to a longer life expectancy, so AI could help take care of the elderly. So they can uh, use personal sensors, environmental sensors, and find out whether a person's uh, regular activities are normal and alert a caretaker if something is abnormal. But you've you've been referring to uh, a huge array of uh, of different benefits from uh, from AI. Um, I I'm, I must say that I uh, listened to um, a talk that was given very recently by. Uh, Yuval uh, Noah Harari, where yeah. he talks about the impacts of AI on on humanity, and he said yeah. that uh, the there are so many benefits that uh, when he was going to give the talk, he only actually referred to what uh, perceived as the the threats of uh, yeah. of AI, and that's uh, what he concentrated on. But we're not going to concentrate too much on that on that side of things. Of course, there were there's some other threats that perhaps you haven't elicited, like. Uh, concerns about lack of transparency, ethical dilemmas, right. security risks, uh, right. concentration of power, having a uh, dependence on, on AI if we start to be utilising it, uh, fears of economic inequality, and the, the list the list goes on. But let's, let's be positive. When I first invited you to talk, you um, introduced me to an article that you just written, which mentioned uh, Professor Ran Balliser, who is uh, head of uh, the major non-profit public health maintenance organisation. They're called HMOs, I understand, uh, Clalit yeah. Healthcare Services. And uh, in order to maintain economic advantage in the marketplace, they're striving to become the country's first innovation-driven HMO, making it the most proactive and advanced technologically for the benefit of its patients and the stop right. of the medical staff as they have about... Fifty percent of the market. So, what uh, what are they doing to um, enter this burgeoning area, Judy? Okay. Well, Clalit used to be the place where people were dumped because it was available only to people who were members of the historic the general labor. Then, in 1995, it was changed to separate the politics and the labor organizations from the health funds, so people were free to join. So now. There are fewer people than there were in, in 1995, but they still have been regarded as unfortunate, the place where you have to go if you have no alternative. So Clalit has invested a lot of money in the Clalit Research Institute, and Professor Ron Balitzer is the Deputy Director General of the Health Fund, and he's the Chief Innovation Officer. He decided uh, 12 years ago to turn health data into decision-making insights that can be translated into tools that transform healthcare delivery and clinical practice. So since uh, most Clalit members remain in the health fund for their whole lives, but although they're allowed to change, every few minutes they can go to one of the other health funds, but he wants to keep them in Clalit. So because they're in college for long periods, then they have health data of people's diseases, how much they weigh, their genetic background and all that, but it's all kept secretly, anonymously. They don't have the names connected, but they know what's wrong 
with the members of Khalid, millions of them. But in the American medical system, they don't trust the federal government with information about health. So that's why Israel is much different from the U.S. The Americans are leery of the federal government. So that's why we're way ahead of the United States in collecting the data on health. One of his projects was to have a predictive model for chronic kidney disease. In other words, deciding who should be first to get the flu vaccine, not according to alphabetical order, but according to who has the greatest risk for getting very sick from the flu. And also, they identified people who are at highest risk to being uh, sent to the hospital. So they send nurses and doctors to come to his house and to treat him before he gets uh, has to be uh, hospitalized. And so instead of waiting for the patients to come in, then they are proactive and they try to prevent people from being sick. For Israel is apparently, according to Balasar, is one of the only countries in the world that's moving from reactive health care to proactive care. They also have a very cute thing called Taito, in which you connect it to your smartphone or your regular phone and you put it in your mouth, a child, and they can see whether the child has a, a throat infection or put it in his ear. They can see if he has an ear infection and they don't even have to go to the doctor. They can do it immediately online. Now, during the pandemic, the Innovation Institute was the first institution in Israel and apparently the first in the world in 2020 to use AI to identify people who are at high risk of being hospitalized for COVID complications. And it was chosen as it was shown to be very, very accurate in predicting who was going to get sick. So Israel is um, very much in the forefront here. Uh, you introduced me to another article, which was in the New York Times a week or so ago, which says, says that doctors are claiming that the best use for generative artificial intelligence in healthcare is to ease the heavy burden of documentation that takes them hours a day and contributes to to burnout. Now, this right. seems to be um, a rather uh, rudimentary use of uh, AI, which is not as glamorous some of the applications you've been uh, describing. Is this mm -hmm. kind of illustrative of the fact that um, perhaps Israel is pushing ahead uh, of, of other countries and uh, being more uh, inventive in terms of its uh, applications of AI and maybe taking more risks than countries like the US? Well, first of all, Israelis, before AI, people complained all the time. You go to the doctor, you have 10 minutes, and he sits opposite the computer, he doesn't look at you, he hardly touches your body, and then he uh, does paperwork. And that is much less because we have the electronic health uh, records. Now, Israel, because we're a small country with poor health uh, funds, we're much more centralized. It's not like private medicine all over the place and doctors have no commitment. At the Technion, uh, Israel Institute of Technology in Haifa, and at Rambam Healthcare Campus, the Rambam Haar Medical Center, also in Haifa, they work together. And they signed an agreement to establish the Bazimin Institute for AI Solutions in Healthcare at the Technion. And in that, they're going to collaborate 
and then delivers some of the best research pro uh, projects at the university and turn it into applications that uh, will benefit people around Israel and around the world. The multidisciplinary projects bringing together experts in all kinds of uh, aspects like hospitals, clinics, drug development, home treatment, and medical wearables, like smartwatches and things like that. The Technion and Rambam have also inaugurated a new center for artificial intelligence and healthcare. It will be the first academic hospital AI center in Israel, one of the first in the world. And it will develop advanced AI systems to analyze a patient's condition. So they're going to develop tools that will help doctors select in real time the most appropriate medical treatment for a patient. Now, the Israel government has, uh, has invested quite a lot of money. We don't have the money like in the United States, obviously, but we also have, we're very good at innovation. To reach our full potential in a leading position in AI, we have to continue under regulation and we're going to succeed. A study made by the Israel Innovation Authority showed that uh, heavy investment in AI has been made by China and other Eastern uh, Asian countries. But since that was conducted, the U.S. and Europe have done more. Have They've produced strategic plans for advancing AI. And we're a small country with 10 million people the size of uh, Rhode Island or something. And so we can't compete with a huge amount of uh, investment done by China I go over research all day long, and I see that Jews, uh, American Jews, are hardly in medicine anymore. They're all Orientals, Chinese, Indian, Korean, and all that. Either they live in America or they live in China, and the the Jewish genius in medicine is gone. The, Ju the Jewish genius in medicine is in Israel, and we've won Nobel Prizes. We have a lot of experts, but... China and all these Oriental countries are taking over. Forget Nobel Prizes of Jews. That depends on the previous generation. So we have advantages in AI in Israel because there's lots of raw digital information, as in Klalit. Uh, we take risks because we take risks every day just going out of the house and doing something. Sometimes if there's a terror attack or if there's of bombing from Gaza, we take risks. And so between 2011 and 2018, investments in Israeli high-tech AI increased by a factor of 12.5, from $305 million to $4 billion. And in 2019, the 42% of the total of sum invested in Israeli high-tech went towards AI technology. So we've been in a leading global position in the field of AI, and now we are among the world's top three countries in AI, following China and the U.S. It's going to be interesting to see how far we can go under regulation, because if AI isn't regulated, we're gonna, it's going to cause disaster in the world. Mm. Because I did some uh, checking there, apparently uh, over twelve hundred artificial intelligence startups in Israel, as That's we right. speak, which is ex quite extraordinary. But it's true that startups don't all become companies. They're no. trying. They don't all because there's uh, of all the 
controversy about changing the judicial system, then uh, there's been less investment in the last six months in uh, Israeli uh, startups, which is a big danger. Uh, the Israeli government doesn't really have to do anything special to encourage uh, AI expansion in Israeli companies. Uh, the the, no, the, the market, investment from the foreign countries has declined significantly since the uh, attempts to reform the judicial system. Yeah, that's that's huge amount. But that that uh, hopefully will be uh, will be will be temporary. That's just um, a reflection of pessimism. Rather than a, a real reflection on the on the underlying strength of the, uh, no, but companies that okay. invest, people who invest, want to have a stable country when yes. things aren't. Uh, it's not so simple. It's very difficult. The Israeli mood has been very bad in the last six months. Yes. Okay. Well, uh, so we can't we can't be that uh, optimistic. There's a few. Uh, Things on, on, on the horizon when it comes to AI and Israel's future that, uh, we've got to be very watchful of. It's been really, um, fantastic having this conversation with you, Judy. I think your, uh, deep knowledge that goes back decades and your understanding of, of what happens in health and science on the Israeli landscape is of great value. To, to us all, and I really appreciate uh, what you've been able to contribute to us today on my program. You're welcome. It's always fun. I mean, I eat uh, medical journals and science journals for breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoy it so much, and I'm a self-taught speed reader. So I read about 100 journals a week, journal articles a week. Well, that's uh, extraordinary appetite you have there for uh, that <laughs> material. <laughs> it doesn't cause people to gain weight. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it goes to the brain. It goes to the brain rather than the 800 stories for the post in the last 15 months. <laughs> but I have fun. <laughs> Thanks very much for talking to us today, Judy. Thank you very much. You've been listening to an interview with the Jerusalem Post health and science reporter Judy Siegel-Iskovitz about the application of AI in healthcare. You can listen to this program or any previous programs by going to the JAIR website, j-air.com.au, and looking for the Israel Connection under podcasts on the main menu there. Please consider supporting what we do at JAIR by becoming a member. Just go to the JAIR website to join. It only costs $50 per annum. Until next week, it's goodbye from the Israel Connection.